Welcome everyone to another episode of Thirsty Thursday. I hope everyone brought a uh, an unslakable thirst today because we are going to be going through a little new home ownership in Tejas. And I'm pretty excited for those of <laughs> you that have no idea who I am. My name is Matt. Sometimes I go by the grass factor. Martin. And alongside uh, me tonight, we have uh, we have Mr. Ray Ito. Uh, Ray, how are you doing, sir? Very well, thank you. Good. Very well. Um, DeMay <laughs> is not doing good, so everybody keep him in your T's and P's. Um, he, early today, said he is no bueno and uh, wanted some time to uh, to try and wait it out and see if he would get any better, and he's not getting better. He's, he's actually getting worse. And so, uh, again, everybody keep DeMay in your T's and P's that he has a swift recovery. Uh, because this is not the time of year in the turf grass industry where you want to be getting sick. That is for sure. Uh, because this is, uh, um, what is it? Doo-doo and get it time of year, right? Uh, worse. This is the time of the year, at least for a cool season grass grower in the Midwest. This is the time of the year where you had better be on your damned A game growing grass growing cool season grass right now because this is not cruise time this is not cruise time at all no (laughs) doubt about it there is there's no cruise right now and uh speaking of no cruise uh we have an extra special guest today mr web civilian cyan how are you doing sir i'm doing great guys thank you for having me Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Uh, so we are going to be doing a uh, a Texas episode today. And I know we have lots of viewers from Texas. And Texas is always one of the fun ones to look at because of the the soil conditions there, right? And it's it's funny that everyone, when, they, when they're in Texas, they go through, I don't know how to describe the, um, the mental thing that happens. But you 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 take a soil sample and you look at it and then you try to compare it to other things you see on the internet and you're like, mine is really different. Like I grow different grass <laughs> than other people. My soil test comes back different than other people. This is different. And and so it's, a lot of times it there's there's cause for panic, right? Because it's, it's so different than a lot of what you see out there. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, a lot of times it's just shock and awe because, you know, again, it looks it looks different than everybody else. And so with with a little bit of modification to the approach um, and some of the things we do in certain areas of the country will apply here. Certain things that take place in those same uh, areas aren't going to apply here because we're dealing with Bermuda grass. So we will be going through this and see what we can't uh, unpack. If you don't mind, Syed. Talk to us. Who are you? How'd you get here? How'd you get to Texas? And uh, how long how long you been going at this? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I, I I we bought this house uh, in the end of 2020. Um, so this is our first house. We I never mowed a lawn before. Um, that's not right. I think I tried real mower around when I was 10 and 11. In my dad's uh your it was it was uh, i think it was the pushing it <laughs> uh but yeah so this is my actual first lot um 
the sod, it was um, nothing there. Uh, so, so it was a new, very new construction house. So they, uh, the sod was laid down around August and the first mow, we did uh, first mow around September. Um, uh, at that time, it was it was okay because it, it was new sod laid down. But after of, um, after the few months passing, passed by, I, uh, I mean, we are seeing some differences in the, in the in the quality of the grass and, and the soil. So this uh, this year, I mean, actually last last year, uh, I did uh, some application of fertilizers. Uh, usually, I did uh, start fertilizer at that time. Uh, weed and feed. I started with weed and feed, uh, the turf builder, weed and feed. Um, so it's, uh, I think around April, I did the weed and feed. And uh, then um, in May, uh, late May, I did their, uh, the grass, uh, the green, max green. So it, it did, um, the grass was much healthier at that time. And then, but the problem is basically the, the the soil uh, we keep looking at the soil the soil keeps uh, um, uh, deteriorates after after a while uh, here in Texas so that's where we are right um, uh, now uh, the weed I mean the weed problem there is some weed uh, so I, I think I have a lot of spurge um, I think that's everywhere mm-hmm. I see around the neighborhood they have a lot of spurge around here. Um, there are some other other weeds as well, as well, but um, nutsedge, um, uh, some dandelions, or but my my I think my from my from my lawn is usually uh, my concern is the grass uh, the, the soil is it, it looks pretty bad when I look at it, and um, so I need I need some help around that. So I start looking. Uh, how to do right um, these things? I I mean, uh, I initially I had um, a lawn guy that came in and he just mowed the lawn, and he would say, "Okay, I can I can put some fertilizer." And I was like, okay, "Is this the best we can do? Is there a way to do it better?" So I started looking around, and I some movies like I saw some like golf course stuff, and they're like, "Oh, you need to use real more than I mean, you have to." this and that so i mean uh, just trying to educate myself and i found you guys uh, so uh, really interested on how to actually do it right and learn about it and apply it on, on my lawn well i apologize in advance for finding us uh because we <laughs> are certainly not going to um uh, oversimplify <laughs> this uh you, you you stepped into a world of complexity here because we have no chill and uh and so again i just want to apologize in advance the nice thing here is that you're probably going to get two wildly different approaches between uh ray and i and uh and that's because i tend to go at things more from a budgetary concern perspective because i was kind of brought up in the volume lawn care game and when i say volume lawn care it's you know i've got to get to 20 properties a day i've got to tweet, treat these 20 properties and um, do the best I can with the tools I have on my truck. Ray is more of everything that I do is going to be pristine and proper and uh, with with 100% customization to everything uh, that I encounter on the lawn. So 
what's unique about that is that you get a very, very traditional way of doing things. And then I will have much more of a, uh, what I, I'm, I'm going to use the word creative. It's not creative. It's going to be more of a, uh, a, a cheap and skirting kind of way. Maybe, maybe the lazy man's way would be the, would be my, my kind Actually, of Actually, Matt, so. uh-huh. I, I would tell you that I'm not conventional, uh, I because, use traditional in instead of conventional no, for because but, because it still has that that traditional golf flavor. I definitely I guess so. call what you do conventional. It's it's more like the traditional, I guess, sports field and golf type, I guess, uh, approach to things, right? Yes, golf and sports yes. field. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I guess that so, word fits. <laughs> I I tried I tried right I tried yeah um so Saya taking taking our and I I want to I want to get this out of the way that um you you've mentioned soil several times and I can tell you just from the get go of taking a look at your pictures um and Jay Pink feel free to throw any of these up that that kind of show density um here uh, especially some of the the, the closer in ones with uh, cracked soil and stuff. Your number one biggest gain that uh, will work towards improving your soil condition here will just be developing turf density. As you get 100% coverage, so many of these cracked soil issues that you're facing right now are going to go away. Uh, Exposure, soil exposure to sunlight atmosphere uh, is going to be the most uh, degradative. I completely made that word up. A degradative, the most degrading thing to soil that you could possibly do is is allow exposure, right? So from my perspective, my immediate approach to this is 100%, let's get coverage. And how do we get coverage? Well, this is where the four R's of fertility come in, the right product, right place, right time, and right rate, okay? And um, what's wonderful here that you have prepared for us is you have provided some soil test. Um, I have not looked at, well, yeah, we'll, we'll start, we'll start with these from, uh, Tejas A&M here. Great turf grass school, by the way. Um, and what we're looking at is pretty, pretty typical, uh, for, for Texas here. Now I will say that a lot of times what you'll see in Texas, especially as you're up towards Dallas or the Austin, Texas area, is that your calcium levels may be closer to like 22,000. And uh, and people normally will like faint when they see that. And they're like, oh my goodness, I got all this calcium in my soil. What do I do? Well, you don't do anything. You don't have to worry about it. It's uh, it's perfectly fine. So I don't want you to worry about seeing just like extreme levels on anything of your, your soil test here. The only thing you would have to worry about anything being like, really 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 high would be would be sodium right because sodium is uh, a pretty pretty strong salt and uh that can cause dehydration issues and uh all kinds of different growing medium issues so but you're not off the chart on it here so really really everything we have here is workable now from top to bottom the main thing that is sticking out is your soil ph right an 8.3 that is not very conducive towards extremely dense turf grass because you're limiting a lot of what the plant can take up via the root system, right? Because you're losing a lot of solubility 
by being at such a high pH, especially of some of your secondary nutrients like your magnesium, uh, iron, zinc, manganese. Um, you start moving into high pHs there. You're you're quickly oxidizing those forms. It's difficult for the plant to solubilize them. Uh, the amount of root exudates that's going to take place. So that's where the root system is going to actually mine the soil to look for these things. But when the soil pH is so high, it becomes more and more difficult for the root system to mine those types of things, right? So um, first and foremost, let's talk about the pH thing because this is going to be an ongoing, never-ending kind of, uh, it should be the the front and forth, just like applying nitrogen, it should be your, your primary goal for uh, fertility. Shows, so should pH management with what we're seeing here. Um, and uh, Ray has developed probably one of the most effective pH management programs uh, in use today. I would argue that uh, that it is. And uh, because you're you're kind of tackling it from two fronts, right? Uh, you have more of a sustained approach through the use of elemental sulfur, and then you have more of a quick approach, uh, you know, tackling that that buffer pH issue by using something very quick acting, uh, like a like a very soluble citric acid source, right? So, Ray, explain a little bit about your pH management program, and uh, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll just start, start yeah. there, right? And, and before you. Okay. Uh, just, I uh, just want to add something. So I did sure. uh, also had the soil test result from I think uh, the soil lab, and if you look at those results, the pH yeah, level let's, was like, let's yeah. compare <laughs> let's compare the front yard here, and and I'll I'll go ahead and go on a tirade real quick. Let me get this rant out of my system because I saw oh, this and yes. I was like, of course that's what the pH is. Of course that's what the pH is. So. And again, I'm not throwing shade to throw shade. I'm throwing shade because shade should be thrown. If you look at the pH between Syed's uh, Texas A&M test and the MySoil test here, you have a wildly different result. Wildly different Oh, result. my God. This and is incredible, you, Matt. This is, is incredible. One and a half points on the pH scale on a logarithmic scale is massive. It's a lot. It's a lot. And okay. <laughs> my soil in general states that they are plus or minus a half on your pH. That's that's their margin of error. Plus or minus a half. Mm-hmm. One and a half is even beyond their range. And I don't, I, again, I've looked at, I can't tell you how many hundreds, if not thousands of soil, soil tests from Texas it's very, very rare you would see one less than seven. It's, it's just wildly unheard of, right? So, again, when I see this six, eight here, immediately red flags would be going off in my head and be like, I, I don't know if that's accurate. And it's just a wonderful data set here that you have, uh, not one but two from Texas A&M with your front and backyard. And they both come up about the same, you know, in excess of eight, which would be typical that you would find in Texas, especially in new construction. So again, for, for those of you that are out there and you're, you're wondering, like you'll hear Ray or myself or Ryan recommend, you know, 
if you want to do this, this is fine, but why you don't have to use this as a soil test and why it's going to be difficult for anybody to actually guide you in any direction with a soil test is because of the inaccuracy issues. We understand what we're looking at when it comes to a Malik 3 test because that's where the majority of the data that has been aggregated in turf grass management was built upon. Malik 3 was, was where the, the standardization of, uh, what is it, SLAN and MLSN were both kind of developed in that wormhole. Uh, and so, we, you know, you, you've got such an immense data pool backed up by that, that switching over to an ion exchange resin where the, the data that's presented to you, one, the pH is horrifically off, and two, you're purely reliant upon the bar chart, right? Because these figures do not mean anything. For instance, they read 390 parts per million of calcium. We take a look at your test from Texas A&M, and you're reading 1,884 parts per million of calcium. And if you look at the bar chart, you're barely on the side of high. And if you look at the bar chart on my soil, you're off the chart high. And so what does this data actually tell you? What can you cross-reference it with to build a better perspective and develop a little bit better understanding of what your approach should be. We don't have any. And there's no transparency from the company to be able to, to look at and they say, oh, well, it would correlate in this way to a Malik 3 or whatever. So if you see this, then that means you should make this adjustment. There's no transparency on that front. So it's, it's, a, it's literally darts at a dartboard. You have to blindly trust that what you're looking at and the recommendations they give you of either a 12-12-12 or a 6-2-4 is the best thing you, you could do. And in reality, in reality, there's a lot here that is not the best thing that you could do. Um, and in the same thing, for any soil test whatsoever, I want to go ahead and throw this out there, never pay attention to the bar chart. The bar charts mean nothing. Don't look at them. I will say Texas A&M is a better choice on the bar chart because they're a little bit more uh, in tune. Now, their nitrogen recommendations, I get how they come up with it. And we have actually talked to one of the Texas A&M professionals, well, Demay has, about this for a little bit of clarification on how they develop that. It's not necessarily something I agree with on the front end because there's too many variables that aren't addressed by it. So I would discard any kind of nitrogen recommendation whatsoever. But we can take a little bit of credence here to the phosphorus recommendations and the K2O recommendations. So anyway, I think that got out okay, of the system. Ray, is there anything else you want to add to this? Okay. And looking at this A&M uh, soil test, there's one more thing that I know about an A&M soil test in that they use Malik 3 for their phosphorus extractions as well. So the significance of this is that you see that 13 part per million of phosphorus, if they're using M3, you actually have phosphorus that is approximately 50% lower than that 13 part per million. And by the way, you know when I was looking at the pictures of your lawn up close? Matt, do you know what I see in the grass? Oh, a little purpling. Mm-hmm. Little purpling, a lot of thinning. This is my classic high pH created phosphorus deficiency, phosphorus uh, 
non-availability syndrome, you know, manifesting in how thin and sparse the Bermuda is. And this is perfect segue for me to break into what I would typically do if I saw pH 8.3 on a soil test. And there's two parts. Let's do it. Shall we? <laughs> mm-hmm. Shall we? Okay. And I just, just want to note that somebody was asking uh, if uh, I took the samples from the same location. The samples were taken at the same day uh, from the same locations. Mm-hmm. And it's just not the front yard that came up with a huge difference. I did backyard as well from both um, Texas A&M mm-hmm. and my soil, and they were off a lot as well. So. Okay, this is still this is still way off because again, I'm not seeing seven point zero five pH from the A and M test. And do you know what my dead giveaway is that these numbers are, are garbage for the pH? What? If that ion exchange resin can pick up that much calcium dissolving in that you know, water and then transferring into the ion exchange resin, you know, blob. That tells me that unless you have an acidic form of calcium in that soil, I'm sorry, sir, your soil is alkaline. Your soil is definitively alkaline. (laughs) Ray, how many sources of acidic calcium are out there? None that I know of. None that I know <laughs> okay. of. And I couldn't think of any either. And I was like, maybe, maybe Ray knows one that I don't. Uh, but uh, there yeah. is, okay. there is, there is one. But I only see that in the baking powder that I use to put together biscuits. It is called calcium acid pyrophosphate, and what that is is that's such a weird form of yeah. calcium and what it is it's, it's basically phosphor phosphoric acid reacted with calcium in a certain way and by the way i don't think any soil is made of that stuff <laughs> i've never seen it happen in nature so <laughs> having said that what we're looking at to get this pH and calcium and sodium levels to a more sane level is this comes in two parts. Part one is taking this calcium level and solubilizing some of it so it can be leached out of the soil with irrigation. And the agent that I like to use to solubilize the calcium is food grade citric acid. And the way that it is applied is it is sprayed onto the lawn as a water solution at the rate of a pound of food-grade citric acid per 1,000 square foot, and then you run irrigation after you make that application, and that puts the citric acid in the soil. The citric acid combines with the excess of calcium and then turns it into a soluble form that can then be flushed out of the soil however the criticism to that is that citric acid is only temporary what is capable of providing a more long-lasting and more permanent quote-unquote result 
is elemental sulfur in the form of 90% sulfur prills that can go through a fertilizer spreader like a fertilizer. And you spread those out, they hit the soil. And what happens when that sulfur hits the soil is that the sulfur then is attacked by bacteria present in the soil called sulfobacters that convert that sulfur into small amounts of sulfuric acid. However, the caveat to applying elemental sulfur is elemental sulfur works best when your soil pH is already 7 or lower. And that is where the citric acid comes in because you will get an immediate temporary reduction in the soil pH such that your elemental sulfur application can work. And your elemental sulfur is applied at rates of, I will use literally up to five pounds per thousand square foot. And on an irrigated lawn that is being irrigated through the growing season, you may do that as often as monthly. Okay. Provided so you have irrigation at, per thousand so square do, foot every month. So do you, uh, you do it, um, is it a liquid application with a backpack sprayer? No, no, sir. It is a, uh, it is actually a granule or a prill. And I typically see this prill as these little flat, things that look like split peas and it will go through a fertilizer spreader, a conventional granular fertilizer spreader, right? And then you you hit it, it hits to the ground and then the water slowly decomposes and disperses those granules once they've hit the ground. So that's a fairly easy application. However, however, this is very important. When you're spreading prilled or granulated sulfur, it's extremely important to not have any kind of overdosages or high concentrations of sulfur in areas like especially not near the edges or spilling in the lawn because high concentrations or high amounts of sulfur concentrated in one place, it will burn the grass. It will burn the grass and kill it. Okay. But there, and there's, it is very important. I was going to say, there's a couple videos. Um, you can go back and check out uh, Aldo on Thirsty Thursday, where he did a Bermuda grass reno, and he mm -hmm. left the uh, the third hole open and dropped his uh, edge guard when he made his application. So mm -hmm. he got an extreme rate on the perimeter. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that area has struggled to uh for for the for the bermuda grass because it it burned and it also did on not so much on the bermuda it it is actually was more so on his rye he overseeded a rye and that was a little bit uh difficult on the on the rye you know as as that releases as sulfuric acid and, he, and here's the other thing too you know sulfuric acid coming in contact with water that's an exothermic reaction and so you're getting this heating process in the soil plus the fact that you have a strong acid in the soil and you get over a certain concentration 
that's going to be uh, uh, detrimental to the root system. We can burn the roots, strip the roots. And so, you know, you just, you, you got to be careful there. And I think the, the easiest thing to do, like Ray says, you know, five pounds per thousand square feet um, monthly during the growing season, if you can apply the water to support it. If you do not think you can apply the water to support it due to HOA restrictions or travel schedule or whatever, skip the month. Call it good. Mm -hmm. Skip the month. And uh, I think that's where you could still make your citric acid applications because you're still going to get some solubilization that takes place with citric acid. And, you know, the, the, the chemistry there is as you're applying a citric acid, uh, citric acid, these oxidized forms of nutrients, whether they're tied up with phosphorus or they're tied up with calcium or, um, uh, or, or just oxide forms in the soils that, that uh, oxide plus a citric acid will form a citrate and a citrate is then soluble, right? So um, iron oxide can be dissolved by citric acid. Now you've got iron citrate is that, is that new soluble form that's now plant available, can make its way into the plant, plant can use it, you get a better overall response. The one thing I would say that you would add to this in addition to, so now you've got three things on your agenda, right? It's citric acid, it's elemental sulfur, and your primary nitrogen source should be ammoniacal nitrogen. Ammoniacal nitrogen is going to be the acidifying form of nitrogen that you can apply. And that could be ammonium nitrate, that could be ammonium sulfate, uh, that could be ammonium phosphate. They're all going to be acidifying forms of nitrogen. A lot of people think it's the sulfate portion, the sulfur content in ammonium sulfate that creates the acidification effect in the soil. It's not. Sulfate is pH neutral, completely pH neutral. Ammonium, however, is going to have a hydrogen release, and it's that hydrogen release that acts as the acidification portion of that fertilizer. So um, the three takeaways there is that you've now established your nitrogen source as either ammonium sulfate or ammonium nitrate. You have uh, uh, elemental sulfur as part of your program, and you have citric acid as part of your program. Now, Ray, let's talk about some alternatives to citric acid real quick because it's in tight supply. It's a little bit difficult to find just due to the state of weirdness that we're in right now as far as product availability. If he cannot get citric acid, what kind of alternatives are out there? Oh, you know, I I even hate to mention it because I get nervous dealing with it. And I have pants with holes burned into it as a result of it. So Although probably don't use very, this. Very, yeah, don't do this. Please don't do this. Because sulfuric I would much acid. prefer, yes, sir, sulfuric <laughs> acid, because I'm talking about the 95% sulfuric acid. Now, think about this very hard. Sulfuric acid at 95% is normally sold in the plumbing aisle of hardware stores. And do you know why they sell it in the plumbing aisle, Said, Yeah. So that uh, if there's hair. The junk. Yeah. Yeah, if there's if there's hair or paper towels or food scraps that are stuck in a drain pipe, you put that 95% citric acid down that drain, the hair or the paper towel or whatever in an hour or two melts 
turns into goo and you can flush it down the drain. Even if it's like, oh, somebody stuffed a, you know, cotton ball or a, or a towel down the drain. Too bad that citric acid is going to, I mean, that sulfuric is going to melt it. So I know for me personally, I have applied 95% sulfuric acid at the rate of up to a gallon of acid per thousand square foot in a high volume of water. However, this is what it's like even diluting 95% sulfuric acid down to a safe amount. Sulfuric acid, when it is in contact with water, especially a small volume of water, gets extremely hot. Okay, it gets very hot. In fact, I've seen sulfuric acid make a plastic bucket get soft from the heat when it's being diluted. Or may not have done that. I don't know. I'm not going to remind me of 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 Breaking Bad. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Very good. Very good. But then the whole point is, is that the only reason why I even would entertain it is because I have a lot of experience handling extremely volatile, toxic, and otherwise reactive chemicals. What about all right? So that you know, Ray's Ray's talking <laughs> about the worst of the worst here. Let's let's uh-huh. transition over something <laughs> a bit more friendly. And uh, what about? Household vinegar. Would acetic acid serve a purpose here? You would need an extremely high volume of household vinegar to get it. In fact, if anything, that what I would probably do to a soil in absence of the availability of citric acid is Matt, how would you feel about? an extremely high-rate application of something like Fixor or Eximo. I'm talking about like a gallon per thousand per application. <laughs> yeah, and uh, at a gallon per thousand, I mean, yeah, that would be that would definitely be really extreme. Um, I've, I've got a video uh, that I will send you uh, at some point, J-Bank. I don't feel like looking for it right now, but... It's one of the things that I had, uh, who is it, uh, Stepper in, in the Discord play around with. And, uh, and so he took a sample of soil, added the Fixmore product to it, and immediate chemical reaction takes place where it starts fizzing because it's reacting with the carbonates in the soil, right? Because mm-hmm. and for, for the, the people that do not know what Fixor is, is that it is hydrogen dissolved in glycine to keep it stable, right? Because uh, hydrogen is a gas, it's not soluble in water. So how do you keep it in solution and stable? You dissolve it in glycine. Um, so it's just straight hydrogen. So it has a true pH of zero. But the unique thing about it is that it's not a salt of a metal. So uh, it's not like sulfuric acid where it's going to eat your skin off. It's not like phosphoric <laughs> acid where it'll eat your pants off. Uh, so any. In, anyway, it's just a safer form. It's an HMI, uh, HMIS scale, zero, zero, zero. 
Um, but it's a very it's a very weak acid in comparison. So that's why you would have to go with such a high rate uh, in order to achieve that. And a gallon per thousand is probably a little on the on the extreme aggressive side. I probably wouldn't feel comfortable going that high. Uh, Actually, Matt, I, I have done eczemol at a gallon right? per thousand at of a thousand because <laughs> I've done it. I mean, and <laughs> Pat Kelly has a little question at the bottom, and this is the second part to dealing with sulfuric acid. After making a diluted solution of of sulfuric acid, like, say, reducing it from 95 down to, say, 20%, that can then go through an all-plastic hose-in sprayer with no brass or steel or copper parts in it because the moment sulfuric acid touches metal that is not a good time at all because sulfuric acid dissolves metal easily however just remember you are dealing with still concentrated sulfuric acid that will dissolve or burn through a lot of things you know that's yeah i think and that's why and that's why I like something like Fixor a lot better because at least I know I'm not going to see my pants, you know, shredding and disintegrating if the wind blows the wrong way, for example. Fixor won't do that. <laughs> Sulfuric acid will. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so compared to citric acid, like how much uh, citric acid do I have to apply? A pound per thousand square foot, followed by a lot of water. water. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what you would do is you dissolve a, a pound uh, in however much water it takes you to cover a thousand square feet, right? So you, your your sprayer there, if it applies one gallon per thousand square feet, then you would put one pound in one gallon, uh, dissolve it, shake it up real good, and then make your application. Again, the the one thing you have to do is um, you have to irrigate that when you're done so you don't uh burn burn the grass but you finish spraying you flip on the irrigation knock it off the leaves work it into the soil it does its magic in the soil and uh and you're totally fine at that point okay and true or false if somebody has suitable equipment would it be possible to meter fix or through their irrigation system. Yeah, I mean, that's the original design of the old Eczema. The original Eczema formulation was for uh, acid injectors. Yeah, because the only reason why I ask that is because something like Fixor is extremely injector-friendly. And do you know why it's injector-friendly? Because it's, it's not a metal. It contains no metals. It eats, it eats it no metals. It doesn't eat metals, and it doesn't react violently with plastic either. Because here's what I know about a sulfuric acid suitable injector. Everything in that injector has to be made out of 
something called PTFE or another fluorocarbon plastic called kynar. If it is not made out of one of those two materials, the sulfuric acid then has a violent exothermic reaction with whatever it's in contact with. I mean, injectors, like, you know, your normal dosatron mm-hmm. will blow up if you put, if you put sulfuric acid in it. Mm-hmm. Your normal, but then a normal dosatron would probably take fixer without any issues because it's non-reactive to metal and plastics. Uh, so, Syed, I know we're really way off into the weeds on this here, and uh, I doubt you're going to be installing a Dosatron yet. You might uh, <laughs> after this show. That that may be kind of next on your on your bucket list. So, um, all right, we'll kind of we'll kind of move on here and talk about from a fertility standpoint. You have heard us mention um, ammonium as a nitrogen source. And, but the big thing here that we also see on your soil tests is that you are what I would consider critically deficient in phosphorus. And that would be whether the approach is from the sustainable levels of available nutrition or the minimum levels of sustainable nutrition. Um, and, uh, so Regardless of how you want to interpret this soil test here, you are within you you are at critical levels of deficiency. And what that means is you are so low in phosphorus that it can begin to cause problems for turf. And in fact, you're so critical that there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that points to that uh, the issues you face with your turf is likely because of your phosphorus deficiencies, right? So um and you're actually right there on the on the line with your potassium as well, too, at least in your uh, is this your backyard? It is in your backyard. All right. So how would we approach this? And it's relatively simple. The difficult thing for you here is the. Um, well. Trying to find all of this in a single product. It's it's difficult to find, and, and you're going to hear us say one, one, one. And what we're going to be talking about is the ratio of nitrogen to phosphorus to potassium being a one to one to one. So it doesn't matter if it's a 10, 10, 10, or a 20, 20, 20, or a 14, 14, 14, triple whatever. As long mm-hmm. as they're all the same, then that's probably an adequate product for you. Now, the difficult part is going to be finding one that has primarily ammonium sources of nitrogen in it. It's easy to find ammoniacal phosphorus, right? Because the majority of phosphorus we're going to see on a fertilizer bag is is derived from some form of ammonium phosphate. And that may be diammonium phosphate or monoammonium phosphate. No reason to get into the weeds on that. All you need to know is that it's ammonium phosphate. That's a good product for you because it's ammoniacal nitrogen and phosphorus that it's supplying to you right now ideally if you could get a blend and if there was a blender out there that had a texas blend that was ammonium sulfate or ammonium nitrate plus ammonium phosphate plus a a a potash source that would be amazing that would be absolutely fantastic but that's going to be very difficult to find so if you can't find it don't sweat 
uh, because there's a little bit of a workaround and we're only going to, I'm only going to ask you to carry two SKUs. I'm not sure exactly how many SKUs uh, uh, Ray is considering for you here, but <laughs> we'll, we'll figure this out. Um, so again, what I would look for is the simplest uh, one-to-one-to-one that you can find that fits your budget and is easy for you to be able to purchase. Now, the second part of this is, well, how much do I apply, right? And what I will say that I do like about the Texas A&M soil test here is their P205 recommendations, right? So these this would be how much phosphorus to apply. And what that allows you to apply is two and a half pounds of phosphorus is what the recommendation is. And what that would also give you is roughly two and a half pounds of K2O and two and a half pounds in. Now, two and a half pounds of N is a lot more than this 0.9 that they're recommending here. Uh, but it hang on, because if you look, that is their initial application recommendation. Then if you look down at the bottom where it says midsummer and early fall, common Bermuda in uh, zoysia grass and every six to eight weeks for hybrid Bermuda grass, apply an additional pound of nitrogen, right? So it's saying that, you know, for a six month period, you're going to be applying, you know, somewhere, uh, somewhere like four pounds of actual nitrogen plus the 0.9 on your fertilizer recommendation. So almost five pounds. And then that would, and then in addition to that, apply two and a half pounds of P2O5 and, you know, two and a half, we'll call it two and a half pounds of K2O for just the sake of math to make things easy. So hear me out on this. I said two SKUs because you could do a one-to-one-to-one, but if you applied five pounds of nitrogen from a one-to-one-to-one, you're going to be way over applying phosphorus for the year. You're also going to be applying way too much K2O for the year. So what you can do is schedule out, right? So say you start your applications in uh, uh, April. Um, I'm assuming that's when you're you're green in your area of Texas is, is going to be March, April timeframe. When you're yeah. green, you can begin these applications. You want to apply it to growing grass. You don't want to apply phosphorus to dormant grass because you're just giving it opportunity to run. So you want to apply it when it's green and actively growing so it can actually make its way into the plant. So you can schedule it out something like this. Like you need two and a half pounds in, you're going to be applying a triple 20, we'll say. So um, you know, four pounds of that product would, de- would deliver 0.8 pounds of P2O5. So we can schedule three applications for the course of the year. You could do one at the start of the season. You could do one at July 4th and you could do one September 1st, something real simple like that. In the meantime, in between those applications, because, you know, we, we're also trying to push this to get it to fill in and all that fun stuff too. Right. Um, and then also taking into account the recommendations from uh, Texas A&M here up to five pounds, something like that. We can actually plug it into the climate appraisal form for Pace Turf and, you know, kind of co-sign the recommendation from uh, Texas A&M here. In between those applications, you can apply something like ammonium sulfate at four pounds per thousand. And Ray, I know you're going to say this is a lot of fertilizer, but there's a reason why I'm going this heavy with it. And that is because he's rotary mowing. He's not real mowing. He's rotary mowing. And I'm not, I'm not judging you for rotary mowing. I like it. (laughs) Okay. I'm, I'm, I noticed. I'm a rotary guy. No, I noticed that. And 
the thing is, is that if you are doing that, your nitrogen requirements will tend to be higher. Okay, they will tend to be on the higher side because if I'm real cutting turf, my nitrogen rate would look more like no more than one to two pounds of ammonium sulfate per month. But because you are rotary cutting, you're, you basically would do better with double that. And <clears throat> here's the other thing that I need to kind of touch on. Do you collect your clippings? So when I had a lot of weed problems, I, I started to start collecting those clippings. And mm-hmm. early in the season, uh, this season, I was, uh, I did try to uh, mow the, um, the grass down to the lowest level I can go, uh, mm-hmm. not scalping. So I did collect at that time, but now I'm, I'm not collecting it. Okay. Okay. The reason why I ask is because if somebody happens to be regularly collecting their clippings, at that point, I then look at increasing their phosphorus and their potassium requirements by at least 30%. And the reason why I suggest that is because in real life, not only is your nitrogen going away with your grass clippings, but the phosphorus and the potassium is going away as well. And I've seen it for myself because there are some lawns that I personally mow and I do not collect clippings. I leave them. There are lawns that other people mow where the clippings are constantly collected and those lawns, I notice, have more issues maintaining adequate fertility. And in the case of you, where your lawn is already fairly thin, I see an advantage to leaving the clippings to act as a sort of buffer or barrier to keep more water in the turf grass. You know, that, that's what I see. And so, yeah, I mean, and also the clippings will be your best friend as well in terms of creating a positive cycle where there's nutrients going back into the soil and there's water being retained by the soil a little better. And therefore that will encourage the grass to thicken up and cover your soil better. I mean, in, in other words, it's possible for you to create a very positive cycle just by how you manage this lawn. <laughs> and people are going to hear like, oh my God, five pounds of nitrogen, that is crazy. And, it, and it, it is, but you have a lot of what I would call very sparse turf. And that's a, you need a lot of lateral spread. And so the approach this year would not be the same as next year. This year, mm-hmm. go ahead, be aggressive, get it grown in, get it covered, because what you'll notice is that moving into next year, it'll cut down on water requirements because you're going to have less evaporative loss. 
all kinds of fun stuff. You know, it was going to be a lot more fun to take care of because you can do different things that are going to elicit different results. And you'll just have more fun once you get that density established because it's going to make life so much easier for you. So this year is the time. Spend the money on the fertilizer. Go ahead. Just get it grown in. You're going to sweat your ass off having to mow it all the time. I apologize in advance. But it will pay off in the long run because you're going to see that you can apply less fertilizer moving forward and have the same quality lawn that you come to expect from this year of having to be so aggressive with it. Um, and does so, it make sense where I'm talking about two different SKUs, right, of using a one-to-one-to-one part, part of the year and then also using something like just ammonium sulfate, the other part, in between? Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense because of the deficiency in the soil, basically. What, what were you going to ask? Mm-hmm. I was going to ask about the difference between the rotary mower and the wheel mower. Why, why one uh, requires more nitrogen than the other one? What, why, what's the reason behind that? Because typically when you are real mowing, you're maintaining it at heights that are on the edge of what is considered tolerable for that turf grass type, right? So, you know, in Texas, you're probably dealing with TIF 419. You're going to be real mowing it somewhere around a half inch, three quarters of an inch. So much of of the the difficulty and the quality of the cut that you're going to get out of that mower is dependent upon the growth rate of the grass, right? It's much more difficult to maintain a quality cut that is going to increase the performance of the grass when it is juiced to the gills real mowing it than it would be rotary mowing it because you've got a lot more leaf surface area to distribute that nitrogen across the plant so you tend to uh to get more of a, a lateral movement out of it um especially at that higher height of cut and What am I leaving out, Ray? Okay, actually, you kind of hit it in that the other thing to think about is that I know of a that attempting to rotary mow Bermuda low lower also creates certain stresses on the grass that also have to be compensated with additional nitrogen to basically ensure that the grass repairs itself after it has been mowed like that. Whereas with a real mower, because the cut is so clean, precise, and non-damaging, what happens to grass that is real cut is that instead of it becoming a stress for the grass to have to overcome, real mowing instead is a non-stress and therefore what happens is the grass is literally encouraged to grow more and so when i'm real cutting a lawn typically i do not need to encourage that lawn to grow more if anything i need to have the grass grow a little bit less so that mowing it doesn't become an issue of having to take off so much top growth from it. Okay. That's so, the difference. That's the, yeah. that's the difference. 
but then I think I mean that just just the inexperience of being a new homeowner, right? Never <clears throat> dealt with Bermuda grass or any type of grasses, and uh, mm-hmm. you go out and you you hear some people uh, they'll say, "Oh yeah, go go, you can get this, and you get you need to get you this, can do you this, start it, mm-hmm. yeah." So mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, obviously, hearing from you guys how to actually do this thing is is really helpful and informative. So yes. probably in a couple of seasons, I, I'll uh, I'll get a real more once. I just want to have some grass back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Looks, well, on, yeah. on the other hand, I can tell you that if I wanted to make grass grow out laterally, what I would be doing is I would be mowing it low and watering it and fertilizing it rather judiciously with the proper, you know, elements. And when I, when I hear people talk about your typical lawn fertilizers, I often say that there's a place for those lawn fertilizers. If that lawn happens to be, in a rather luxurious soil condition where the soil does not have a potassium deficiency or a phosphorus deficiency, then I have no objection to a conventional lawn fertilizer. I have no objection to it. But there's two cases where that conventional lawn fertilizer falls down. Number one is if your soil is deficient in phosphorus and potassium. Case number two is if your soil pH is over seven. And when it is over seven, let me explain to you what happens. Typically, your normal conventional lawn fertilizer is very heavily oriented towards urea nitrogen. and Urea nitrogen is typically found in both an immediately soluble form and then what happens in a lawn fertilizer to extend the duration of nitrogen response, those the urea is either polymerized and turned into a less soluble form or it is coated with a plastic matrix that delays the dissolving of that urea prill, and so it becomes time release. But if your soil pH is over 7, this is what happens to urea. If urea is in contact with soil that is over pH 7, a lot of that urea will immediately be converted to nitrogen gas carbon dioxide, and ammonia gas, which then will literally evaporate out of the lawn quickly. You won't get it. It'll just go I away. Think that's, that's what happened when I applied the uh, Scott's fertilizer because I didn't see much of the result, the greening and all that. after Really? And, and you were expecting yeah. more greening? And you know what? I had a similar experience with one of my customers that had Bermuda on pH 7.5 soil, and they told me, hey, 
I followed the bag instructions. I spread it out. I watered it. I did everything I was supposed to do. And they told me at best their grass was green for approximately one week. And then it went back to being pale. And the way that I corrected that issue so that the grass would stay green for a prolonged period of time is I took their, their soil pH below seven. I dropped their soil pH with the sulfur, with the citric acid and the elemental sulfur. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of where you're at. And the difference is, is that while I was working on their soil pH, the product that got the grass to be green for any length of time until the soil pH was corrected was ammonium sulfate and fertilizers that had ammonium phosphate in them. And if I know something about your typical granular 111 type fertilizers like hardware store 101010 or triple 15, is that all of them have their phosphorus derived from ammonium phosphate. So that's kind of a good thing for you. You will get something out of applying something like that. That's the good news. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I can tell you that even under very like severe conditions, like what you what you're dealing with, I have yet to see a lawn not green up and start to grow when it's hit with some ammonium Hell nitrogen. Yeah. Conversely, I've seen lawns just fail to respond in spite of getting, you know, your super duper green them up uh, lawn fertilizers that are mostly urea. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, uh, you you hear us talking a lot about MPK. What you don't hear us talking about is a lot of bells and whistles to go along with this. And uh, if you were expecting some tricks or inside baseball or uh, some of those <laughs> top secret sauce types of things to to go along with Hell this, yeah. there are none. There we are don't none. have any for you. And the reason being is that you know. I I would say okay you know you I would say start adding in foliar micronutrients for special events once you get a hundred percent coverage right you want to trick things up especially while you're while you're waiting on your pH to come down because again don't get frustrated when you check your pH next year and Hell it moves yeah. point one you're gonna be like I did all this work it did nothing it did it's going to take time. It's not going to happen in a season, especially in your type of condition. If you're further up in the Northwest, you're probably going to get a lot more movement than you will down there where you are. So don't get frustrated after one year and quit. Um, the second thing is, is that a lot of next step remedies are going to fall into the category of when you have coverage, because we're going to be taking advantage of that leaf surface area that you have now, right? <laughs> like for instance, with foliar micronutrients, 
the more leaf surface area you have, the more that makes it into the plant, the greater overall response you get. If you don't have the leaf surface area and you're relying purely on the root system for uptake, it's just not going to be as strong of a visual response. And you're not, in my opinion, in my opinion, the return on investment for that type of product and that type of application isn't there for you yet. Um, because it's it's not what's going to catapult you in the same way that good NP and K is, right? So this first season, until you get 100% coverage, in my opinion, it should be an NPK program. Get good with it. Get great with it. Learn how to water the grass. And when I say learn how to water the grass, I'm going to say this. Don't follow a schedule. Follow visual cues. So flipping on the water before or when you start to see the kneeling of the grass or you walk through the grass and you notice your footprints in it after you walk through it. And it's a different look when you see your footprints in it. And it just, it almost has a shine to it. It's a, it's a different, your footprints leave a different look in the lawn. Watering in, on that type of interval where you have complete and total control over when it comes Hell on yeah. is you're introducing those little bits of stress that are forcing that root system to go a little bit further and a little bit deeper to look for water. And so it's a, it's a, it's another uh, cultural practice that you can introduce that is setting you up for peak performance out of this MPK program that you're executing. Right. Um, is there anything particular about water you want to add to that Ray or I feel, yes. I feel like it from that context. It, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. And I also have to put this into a context where I see your lawn in its present condition. And Matt, because his grass is not dense and full and in 100% health right now, I actually classify his lawn as more like a grow-in. Yeah. Okay? Okay, I would treat his lawn more like a grow-in. And so... In that instance, I'm looking at supplying water such that because I know the turf is not going to be able to keep much water in it, I'm looking at supplying the water regularly and not allowing the turf to dry out excessively because looking at your soil, there's one more little condition that I would want to avoid. And that that condition is known as hydrophobic soil. And you typically get what's called a hydrophobic or water-repelling soil when you've allowed your soil to dry down very far and then you finally decide to water it. So in other words, if that were my lawn and I had to water it, I'd be looking at three to four watering events per week. And you still water like, uh, so is it, so people say that you have to water like uh, one and a half inch around one to one and a half inch a week, a week for Bermuda. So yes. how much, uh, so what I would do that into force. Divide that into thirds or fourths and apply throughout the week and 
and because your turf is in the condition that it's in, I don't recommend drying it down excessively. And I also don't believe that you have the root mass or the cover such that a once a week watering will even work for you. I don't think so because I know that Bermuda, when it is a hundred percent and everything else is in order, it'll do fine on a once or twice a week watering. But looking at you, I'm not sure that would be the, the best move for you right now. Wait till your grass is fully covered, has adequate density, and you're not looking at bare spots. And also, your soil pH is more under control. Then you can explore reducing water. Because the other thing about sufficient water is that when you are embarking on a soil acidification program, you will then liberate a lot of soluble salts from that soil. And the extra water will enable those soluble salts to get flushed out of the soil so that it does not become toxic to the turf grass. So I have a question uh, on the nitrogen and amount of uh, pushing the growth of the grass. So as you have seen from the pictures, I do have some weed problems as well, like spurs and other weeds. Mm -hmm. So. I'm guessing that it will also help the the weeds grow as well. It'll help the weeds grow, but then that is like the next piece because this all goes hand in hand and it happens in steps because I frequently get asked this question because I do something horrifying and shocking to lawns that are in this condition. And you know what that is, Matt? Uh, what do you do, right? I fertilize them. <laughs> I fertilize them. I don't I care. Do, I, do the same. I don't care what weed a person has in their lawn. But for me, primary focus or the first thing that I'm interested in is getting the grass to be healthy. And there's two reasons why I want the grass healthy. And even the weeds healthy too. Reason number one is so that when I do get around to doing weed control on that lawn, the lawn tolerates it without excessive stunting or damage. And number two, so that because the weeds are rapidly growing, because they're rapidly growing, any kind of herbicide treatment I apply subsequently is rapidly taken up into a fast-growing weed that is not hardened off by dormancy due to lack of water or lack of nutrients. Because I had an extremely horrific experience 20 years ago that stuck with me all this time. <laughs> and you know what that experience was? Is I sprayed a lawn 
that actually needed to be fertilized first, right? And instead of the spurge curling up and turning brown, all of the Bermuda turned crispy. <laughs> and the wheat, the, the spurge was still green. And do you know why I, that happened in the first place? It's because that one actually desperately needed to be fertilized. It didn't need me to apply a broadleaf weed killer or herbicide to it. And at that time, I had a broadleaf weed killer that I call absolute hot sauce. <laughs> it was absolute hot sauce because, Matt, that was the old Super Trimic. Which is a, <laughs> was a great product, and I really appreciated that when it was on the market. Um, but, Syed, but the, as far as weed control, what do, what do you feel comfortable with? What's on your shelf right now for post-merge so, herbicide? Uh, so I applied... Uh, end of March, I actually applied uh, uh, the, the granular. I forgot the name. Uh, just what's it called? The usually the uh, the pre-emergent that's applied. Uh, it's recommended. Uh, like a prodiamine or something. Prodiamine, exactly. Yeah, yes, prodiamine. Yes. Okay, prodiamine uh, and fertilizer. Yeah, that's the first time I did that because I was using feed and feed, which was not working. Usually, the problem with the weed and feed, which I found, was I was the grass wasn't growing at that time uh, because the grass is dormant. When they when they say you apply, uh, it's not growing season yet, and um, and you see have to basically make sure that there's mist uh, on on the surface for that to stick and work. If there's no mm -hmm. grass, um, it's not gonna work, right? So that's what I. Uh, found with applying the weed and feed product. So this year, I uh, did some research and uh, uh, applied prodiamine. And then I do have, uh, I bought Celsius uh, for broadleaf control. And I do have Certainty or like Nutsuch. I did try, when I was doing uh, prodiamine, I, I did also apply Imazequin, um, uh, wow, <laughs> maybe I did the wrong thing, I, I don't know, but I mixed them together, uh, in a small amount. I didn't do like the whole, uh, full uh, volume at that time, and so I did the half, uh, just to see how it stores and works out. There was my, I'm trying my first time, I just don't want to damage, uh, the turf. Uh, that much, but I just want to see how uh, the uh, how the results would be. So I um I'm I'm not seeing that much weeds. Maybe I am. I'm not in the grass, and maybe the soil is not conducive enough because of the lack of nutrients. Uh, but I I have a section. I think around a thousand square feet section that's like taken over by spurge completely. So. And I, and I think this is another example where, again, I would focus on fertility first. And you'll notice that even the post-emergent weed control you get out of Celsius is going to be so much more effective uh, with 
the, the, the weeds actively growing. It would be way more effective. Um, especially things that are highly systemic like Celsius or any of the sulfonylureas that are extremely, um, uh, extremely systemic, you know, you're, you're really relying on that translocation throughout the plant. And so if it's not growing, it's not moving throughout the plant, you're not getting the activity out of it. So, um, I, I, you have basically everything you need to be able to tackle this. You may want to look at a generic three-way product like, uh, Trimac 992 or, um, uh, what are, what are some of the other trend names? Uh, uh, tri- triplet, uh, triplet, 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 SF mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for, for broadleaf weed control when it's dormant, like when you're putting out your first round of prodiamine and you got a couple of dandelions in your dormant grass or something, and you want to do a little bit of spots brand, you could take care of it then. Or if you need a little bit of a kicker in combination with your, uh, with your Celsius for some difficult to control broadleaf weeds like Celsius with. Uh, an additional half ounce per thousand square feet of three-way on top of Spurge is going to absolutely roast it. Probably going to cause a little bit of discoloration in your Bermuda, so be mentally prepared for that. Um, but it it will give you just that little bit of added edge to it. Um, and actually, uh, Ray, a combination of Celsius and Certainty, you're 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 going to move into some kind of weirdness on the broadleaf weed control from the Certainty as well, too, wouldn't you say? Actually, that is like certainty plus Celsius is probably the safe bet to apply when it gets too hot for a three-way, but you're getting good control of Nutsedge. And this is what I do not like about Nutsedge. It never fails that Nutsedge comes up in force right in june or july it just shows up and it's everywhere and that is about the same time that your spurge is also going full force as well and what i know about something like celsius is that celsius is extremely well tolerated by well fertilized bermuda i have not had a problem applying a suitable rate of Celsius to Bermuda. Never had a problem. And likewise with certainty, I've never had a problem applying certainty to Bermuda. And the thing that I like about both of those products is that it does more than just a temporary browning of the weeds. What you get out of it when it's properly applied is it might take two or three weeks for it to happen, but when it's dead, it's dead. Yeah, so I think uh, my other question would be that do you do you apply that like after uh, I've started on the program, like maybe a month or two, like how much time do you wait for the grass just just by visually inspecting the grass, it's green now, it's spreading, and then you... Yes, yes, yes. I mean, for me, I frequently get called in to rehabilitate situations like, uh, you know, what you portrayed in the pictures. I get called to do that, and what I first do is start up the NPK, and in a month 
normally I see the grass responding to the fertilizer. Weeds are starting to grow aggressively. And at that time, I come in with the selective herbicides. And what happens in that case is the herbicides work extremely well. You will know. Like, and, and so I, I wouldn't worry about that. Like, you'll definitely know. It'll be real obvious. You're going to be like, I need, I, need to, I need to take care of this weed situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, but the thing is, is that likewise, you'll also see the grass getting ultra, like, green and vibrant looking, right? So the flip side to that is that when you apply a selective herbicide to that, you'll see a lot less yellowing because for me, my experience applying these kind of products to a lawn that should have been fertilized is I can get varying shades of either yellow or brown from the application and poor results as regarding the, the weed control. So this app, this uh, application for NPK, so uh, it's growing season up till like uh, August, September for for Texas, South Texas area. Uh, Well, because you're in South Texas, when do you start to go dormant? I think late October. uh, Okay. Okay. Because... What I would do is I would plan my last fertilizer application, whatever it is, to be about 30 to 45 days before expected dormancy. Okay. That's, what, that's, how, that's how I would do it. And likewise, I would also discontinue the sulfur a- application at least a month before dormancy as well, because sulfur, you know, the elemental sulfur prills is not something that I'd want to keep applying in the winter months because what sulfur needs in order to be converted by the soil bacteria into the acid and to do its work of reducing pH is that Sulfur also needs warm temperatures. It, it likes the warm weather in order to do its best work. Okay. So, but citric acid is okay? Or do I need to start? I would also, I would also discon, I would discontinue this, the citric acid at the time when you no longer need to put water on the grass. I see. Okay, because when you're applying citric acid, that is to be followed by irrigation. And furthermore, after you've applied it, the turf grass should not be allowed to dry down excessively because citric acid liberates a lot of salts in the soil, and those salts need to be flushed out of the soiled in a timely manner so water is is a good thing to do it's not good on the other hand to apply citric acid and then not water 
that's not a good thing at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you want the the acid to go down in the soil to lower the pH, right? There's no point of yes. watering. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's lowering the pH by chemically combining with the sodium, the magnesium, and the calcium, and putting it in a form that can get flushed out with water. That's how it works. <laughs> so sourcing sourcing all these products, right? Um, I mean, do you guys recommend some um, specific uh, chains? Okay. Or? You know what I would do? Because you're in Texas, I would seriously look at the places that supply fertilizers to the farmers and the ranchers because chances are they have ammonium sulfate and 111 fertilizer at fairly economical prices. As to the citric acid, that can get more interesting in that you may need to find an online vendor that has it. And I can advise you that it may cost as much as $125 to $150 for 50 pounds or something yeah, along uh, those lines as, in terms of pricing. So that um, the Ryan or product that um, is, is that a comparable? Uh, that would be right? that would be very comparable. That would be extremely comparable, and that might actually be easier to source and work with because here's how citric acid comes. Citric acid comes in the form of these fine, dry crystals that look almost like sugar. And in order to work with that, it needs to be dissolved in water first. However, the thing is, is that with the uh, that Fixor product, that is already a liquid. So that can go straight into the spray apparatus and be applied. <laughs> right. So cost-wise, uh, I mean, the quantity that I need to apply, right? So one pound mm. of, of citric acid per thousand mm -hmm. square feet. Um, is it compatible cost-wise as well? or? Is... Well, I think the Fixor may cost a little bit more. Yeah, it's probably going to be may... more expensive. It's going to be more expensive. Especially, especially at really aggressive rates. But I guess what, you, what you're getting out of that is, I guess, the convenience because I can tell you about this already dissolved liquid citric acid. It's called Gross Products pH Reducer. And last time I looked, that retails for $100 for two and a half gallons. But all that is, is 50% 
citric acid. Right, okay. Matt? That's all that is. That's that's 50% citric mm-hmm. acid. And uh, I can make the same thing with food-grade citric acid in the sprayer. And the REITs yeah. that I use are a lot more aggressive than what that growth products product is suggesting because if I wanted a pound of citric acid to be applied, I'd be applying a half a gallon of that gross products pH reducer per thousand square foot. That's a lot. I'd be applying, I'd be applying a lot. So, you know, in terms of dollars and cents, that gross products product is probably way up there in terms of cost becomes very non-viable economically. (laughs) And that's yes. why I went to straight citric acid. Okay. So, mm. Like I, uh, similar to what Magical, they have a product to lower pH as well. I think Magical Plus Alkaline or something. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Let me tell you what Magical is. <laughs> Magical preys on people's ignorance because. What is contained in Magical for alkaline soils is nothing more than gypsum. And gypsum is, this this deserves another (laughs) rant. It is is very, very frustrating (laughs) that continually, it's become a thing here recently that people are recommending gypsum for uh, alkaline soils to reduce soil pH. Gypsum is calcium sulfate. Um, (laughs) There is nothing acidifying about that application whatsoever. Nothing about it. If you want Mm -hmm. to acidify the soil, you have to apply something that is going to be releasing hydrogen, right? Like H2SO4, uh, sulfuric acid, right? That makes sense on how that's going to be uh, acidifying. Uh, Same with, with citric acid. The, you're you're relying on that hydrogen release. Uh, CaSO4 is not releasing any hydrogen, therefore you're not getting any acidification of the soil, right? So, um, please, the, the the easiest thing to do is there is a statement on every fertilizer label that is called the derived from statement, and always. Look at the derived from statement. Now, Magical for uh, alkaline soils, I'm looking at it here. They have a little bit of ammonium sulfate in it, and they have a little bit, a very small amount of what they call sulfuric acid. I can tell you from a manufacturing perspective that that is not very transparent. Effectively, what they're doing is using a sulfuric acid dilute in taking uh, powdered calcium sulfate and powdered ammonium sulfate and using that dilute sulfuric acid as a binder so those uh, powdered ingredients begin to agglomerate and adhere together. And so they're, they're claiming, and it, and it reads when you look at that, that, oh, you're getting this major acidification effect because you know, you've got sulfuric acid in here. You got you got ammonium sulfate in here. But if you look at the amount of calcium in here to the amount of sulfur, you can then deduce of how much of that was derived from gypsum 
and then how much of it was actually produced from uh, ammonium sulfate and sulfuric acid. And I can tell you that it's a very, very small amount. And the amount of acidification that would come from this is as close to zero as just gypsum would be. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, the, in, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know if you've ever seen the video where I, I did where the the magic yes, out. I was I was I was going to mention that I did see that video with you and Jay Ping and you did the experiment and uh, added um, made it chelated and see how how much amount is uh, present in the same amount of bag, which five dollar bag and versus magic was just the same. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so elemental sulfur in this, in this instance where you're talking about 90% of it is derived from elemental sulfur, you know, it's 90% sulfur in that application that is going to give you a much larger conversion to uh, a sulfuric acid. This is primarily all derived from sulfate. And remember sulfate is not acidifying. So you're relying on the sulfuric acid in the binder, which is a very, very, very minute amount, and the ammonium from the ammonium sulfate. And considering that there's no nitrogen analysis on this product, uh, not not that I see on the label, I see no guaranteed analysis of nitrogen on this label. That means it's going to be less than one, uh, because due to fertilizer laws, if it's above a one, you typically have to list it. Um, so it's. There's really next to, to zero acidification effect that you're going to get from this type of product. So for my soil, I was I was also um, thinking of applying Carbon Pro G or to hold some water. Is it is it a good idea? Um. Okay. No. <laughs> I know. I know. Gray is. Um, yeah, because I don't have gr- grass clippings, right? So uh, if you see, yeah, not yet, not yet. Mm-hmm. But let me explain something to you about what happens when you feed grass what it actually wants and needs. The grass creates its own organic matter in the soil. That happens, okay, and. It normally creates that organic matter in a quantity that may be even a little bit more than what the grass actually is healthy on long term. And the reason why I say this is you have heard of these procedures called verticutting and aeration, right? Yeah. Do you know what the actual purpose of those procedures is for? When used on fine turf, what those procedures are used for are to remove organic matter from an established turf and enable you to replace that organic matter in the case of golf courses and sports fields with sand that does not contain any organic matter in it. Let me get very technical with you here real quick. What is the biomass that is used to produce the biochar that's in carbon pro G? Is it hardwood, softwood, pine, uh, switchgrass, manure, biosolids? Do you know what the 
co- coconut husk, almond shells. Do you know what the biomass is off the top of your head? I don't, and that's why I'm asking. I think I read the label that was mentioned. Uh, it's uh, manure from, yeah, I think it's manure. Or... It, it, I'm sorry, it's what? It's 50, I think it was uh, 45% manure, pig manure, uh-huh. pig mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and there was another thing in there. So it, it is, it's, it's, uh, it contains pig manure and, and then a biochar. And I don't know what was used to produce the biochar. Um, someone may okay. know and, and, and please, oh, uh, somebody said pine. Uh, it comes from, from pine bark. Okay. So what's specific about biochar derived from pine, which is a softwood, and it doesn't actually matter too much if it comes from bark or it comes from the actual wood. The other thing you have to take into account is the pyrolysis temperature, right? What temperature are you heating at? How long is it pyrolyzing? Uh, because that's going to influence what your total carbon content of the final product is. But more specifically, what that's going to tell you is what kind of properties you're going to elicit from that biochar. Specifically, if you're using pine, whether you're at low temperature or high temperature, what you're usually increasing from that product is cation exchange capacity. You're in Texas. There's one thing you do not need to worry about in your soil is cation exchange capacity. You can hold all the cations. So applying something that is very high cation exchange capacity to a soil that is already high cation exchange capacity isn't really doing anything for you. Now, if you wanted to go source one from corn stover that is at a high temperature that is going to be very high anion exchange capacity, and you wanted to, you know, uh, 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 use a, a urea or something and treat that pile for a bit and then apply that to the lawn to increase the anion exchange capacity of your soil, you might see some sort of benefit from it that you really like, right? All of a sudden, your nitrogen is going to last a little bit longer. You're going you're gonna to get this weird, like, that's strange, where I was normally getting four weeks of response. Now I'm getting five weeks of response from my fertilizer application. The practicality of you being able to go find that specific type of biochar is much lower uh, because you're, you're going to have to find a, a, a specialized type of manufacturer and typically Biochar is a waste stream from renewable energy, and all they care about is bringing in biomass in general to produce the renewable energy and then just getting rid of all that biochar because they got to do something with it. And you can only landfill so much of it before they start to freak out and they're like, okay, you're done sending sending it here. Let's send it somewhere else. So it makes sense to spread it agriculturally because you can cover such low amounts across such large amounts of acreage, right? It's much you know, dilution is the solution to pollution kind of thing, right? Uh, you get it out over many, many, many acres. It's not in concentrated form and you're good to go there. So again, what you're doing by applying something like carbon pro G to what you already have is a bit redundant, right? You already have a high CEC soil, adding a high CEC product to it is you're, you're, you're being in the wind. Gotcha. I'm just asking questions. So I'm, no, totally just my understand. learning. Ask away. Ask (laughs) away, please, because uh, if there's one thing we like to do is we like to make lawn care relatively simple. And I don't know how much more simple it can get. (laughs) 
Yeah. How much more simple can it get? I mean, two simple fertilizers, right? And that's all you, that's all you do because, and you know, your application intervals on these two simple fertilizers, uh, what did Matt say? Three times a year. And in between that, you supply additional nitrogen as the turf is using it. And you know what is beautiful about ammonium sulfate? You get an extreme. No, you get an extremely predictable response from that application. It's predictable. Versus with a lot of these more boutique fertilizer formulations, you throw it on the lawn and then it's anybody's guess when you actually get the nitrogen out of it. It's anybody's guess. It's like you might get it. Uh, in a week you might get it in a month uh, and lord help you if everything that you've applied is still there and your grass is going dormant and I know something about warm season grasses where the last thing I want is a high amount of nitrogen release happening at the time that the grass is supposed to be dormant I don't want that. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's, yeah. So any other questions? Uh, yes. So I was I was <laughs> Beat Ray, the Ray mentioned yeah. Ray mentioned aeration and uh cutting, right? So do you do you think just aeration at this stage will help or do I need to do that now or uh, just fertilize? Okay. Okay, I would mostly fertilize because there's something else I know about grassroots. Grassroots are extremely aggressive and they will grow in soil that you wouldn't think that they'd want to grow on because, for goodness sake, I have grass squeezing through concrete walls and grass growing in the cracks of sidewalks and driveways. I see that happening. So I cannot be told that, oh, a normal soil in a residential lawn is so hard that it won't grow grass. And on the other hand, though, if somebody were to put in the effort to actually aerate, what I would then tell them to do is in order to make that worth your while is you then take away all of the soil plugs that have come up from the aerator, take them all away, move them off of the lawn, and then replace that with sand. Sand. And then it would be worth it. I think it's a good, um, my question, yeah, again, uh, so one one thing I also see is some people say you you add sand, some people say use topsoil. So, (laughs) uh, I mean, if you look at my composition, right, it's, uh, it's, I have a mixture of sand, clay, and 
and so, mm. so you know okay well what i would do you know knowing what i want to do with grass is i would look towards long term a procedure known as sand capping and what sand capping is get ready side you're about to enter a world of pain <laughs> physical pain. <laughs> is you take your bermuda grass your existing lawn and you build up inches of sand on top of that existing soil and your bermuda grass then grows and exists in that top layer of sand instead of the soil so but when i say a sand cap though on bermuda grass i am visualizing anywhere from 4 to 6 inches of sand on oh. top of the existing soil and the That's beauty a, is a world of hurt the <laughs> beauty of this is is that you do not need to dig up the existing lawn. What you may need to do, because of the amount of sand that's being introduced, is raise the irrigation heads so that they're not buried in several inches of sand. That's the only you know, caveat to this procedure. So sand will hold water and nutrients as as uh, it goes. Absolutely, it will not hold okay. them like soil. However, remember what I said about how grass creates its own environment, even in sand. Because I've seen cases where grass was established on top of white tropical sand and in one year's time that sand turns dark brown from all of the organic matter that the turf grass has created okay yeah, so awesome. at first but but at first you're going to need to pay attention to water and also well i think we've already laid out for you what you need to do in terms of nutrition and the same rules apply whether you're growing on sand or on soil. And in the case of the soil that you've presented us, I don't count on this soil being anything other than a place for the grass to grow on. <laughs> you know, that's my opinion. Yeah. That's my opinion of it. It's like this is like J basically. Basically, something for the grass to put its roots into. I don't expect it to be some wonderful thing that is supplying the grass what it needs. Right, Japing. If okay. you if you look at my front uh, yard results, there is, mm -hmm. there is the composition, sand composition, so on. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's essentially the same thing. You know, yeah. it's essentially the same thing. Maybe. I'm guessing that the, uh, you know, the part that has more phosphorus in it got a little more fertilizer during its lifetime. Uh, but otherwise, 
in the scientific world, they would say that there's no statistical di- difference, you know, between the values. There's no st- statistical difference at all. It's basically similar and for the purposes of uh, science, the same. Okay. So okay. the percent percent of organic matter, like what's what's a healthy percentage uh, of organic matter when it comes to... I plants? would not. I would look at... I actually have a ceiling don't, where... Don't chase. Don't okay. chase organic yeah. matter. Complete, in fact, it, so yeah, it's going to stabilize somewhere between two and three and a half percent, and that is mm-hmm. that is totally okay. Chasing your organic matter number, trying to raise it, is going to be a losing battle. And uh, and what's Actually, weird is that you'll you'll raise it, and then uh, it, okay, let me let me put it into perspective this way: a furrow slice of soil is two million pounds, right? Say you take something that is a hundred percent organic matter. And you apply it at the rate of, you know, like we'll say a fertilizer that you apply at uh, at 10 pounds per thousand, right? Uh, across an acre, that would be 430 pounds, 435 pounds per acre. So into a furrow slice of soil of 2 million pounds, we're talking about you added 0.00. Organic matter. Oh, wow. So you applied 10 pounds per thousand of material, a lot of material, and you didn't even move it a fraction of a percent in terms of organic matter. And here's the thing is as you enter warmer weather, mineralization of that organic matter will occur. And so of that 0.02% organic matter that you applied, you're probably going to be left with 0.01% by the end of the year. And uh, so do not chase that. The roots will bring up your organic matter over time to two and a half, three percent 3%. And that's perfect. That's the grass will take care of itself in that regard. Okay. Conversely, I have seen what happens when somebody successfully raises their organic matter above 4%. And most of it is not good. Yeah. Here's here's what happens. You have a soil that doesn't dry out when it needs to dry out. It also has an issue where you have no control over nutrients. And the other thing that I'm going to kind of like slide into this is with all of these other things out of control, it is going to be rather hard to maintain turf because here's some things that happen when you don't have control over water. You have diseases because the soil is excessively wet. You also have a problem with the grass just growing too damn much. Because, again, you don't have control over water and nutrients. So it's just not a good situation because you also have some people that will tell you 
what you need to do is put partially decomposed organic matter in a half-inch layer over the turf grass. Please do not do that. Please don't. Don't do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, please do not because that'll that'll j- jack up your organic matter numbers by a lot. If you do it, do it also- once and then and then one you'll learn that I probably should never do that again from a physical pain standpoint and uh and two you'll realize that when you after you do that and then you switch over to just fertilizer you're going to be like, wow. I could have gotten the exact same result with just fertilizer and saved my ass a ton of money and a ton of backache. Okay, because Matt, uh, isn't it true that a application of these partially decomposed organic matter type materials is equivalent to applying about a pound or so of NPNK per thousand square foot, depending on how much organic matter you're layering onto the lawn? Matt, that was, I don't, maybe your audio died. Uh, I, yeah, I, it did. It did. I'm really confused right now because my screen locked up and I don't know. I okay. apologize. Okay. But, but anyway, I had a little question for you, Matt. Isn't it What's true that? that when somebody applies these partially decomposed organic matter type materials, depending on the amount that they apply, they're actually applying approximately a pound of N, P, and K respectively per thousand square foot when they do that organic matter top dressing. Very well could be. Very well could okay. be. Especially if you're getting into where you're layering on like a half inch or an inch of compost or something. Half inch, you're yeah. really and starting to get down a ton of N, P, and K. Yeah, because you see, that is a common practice in my area, Matt. And what typically happens is the lawn grows like mad for a month or two out of that application. And then the nitrogen response crashes. But then because of that high organic matter percentage, I still have that water issue. Too much water. So, you know, take that for what it's worth and uh, be very careful because a lot of people will want you to do that to the grass. And I can see a use case for doing this if somebody is growing annual vegetables or if somebody is growing annual flowers. And do you know why I have no problems with that? Yeah, it is because like no, not only that, these crops that I'm talking about are not perennial and they are not going to be there long enough to create the favorable growing environment in the soil that they desire. On the other hand, Bermuda grass is forever. You can't get rid of it. <laughs> so... In time, with that Bermuda grass growing there long enough, it's going to create all the organic matter that it could possibly want, and then some. 
You know, so I don't see a good purpose for backing up a truck to a lawn and shoveling all that stuff out on the lawn. I just cannot see a good use case for that. Not when with a little bit of NPNK, the grass is going to do all of that backbreaking labor for me because I'm terminally lazy. <laughs> Same here. Same here, right? <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. We're brothers. <laughs> we're brothers from another mother then. <laughs> we're both terminally lazy. <laughs> Yeah, the best medicine is no medicine, right? Yeah, yeah. Do okay. Thank you for bringing that up, Syed, because you'll notice that even for myself, with you know maintaining the kind of turf that I do, my preference is to have as few inputs of labor and materials as possible while still maintaining an acceptable appearance. Mm. And what I consider an acceptable appearance is actually rather high. However, when going after that acceptable appearance, I do not get caught into the trap of doing and applying more and more and more. Right. You know, for me, it's all about how little I can do and still make the grass look that way. Think of it like a acetaminophen, you know, a, a little bit mm. is, 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 is a good, nice uh, pain reliever. And a lot of acetaminophen, all of a sudden your liver is melting out of your rear end. That's a, that's a bad thing. Yes. Yeah. You see, a little bit is uh, fantastic if you have a bad headache, but uh, too much and you're dead. And likewise, I think in the world of lawn care, what I see happening is what's going to happen to a lot of people is that they're going to figure out that more does one of two things. Either more does nothing greater than minimal or more has bad effects because the interesting thing about acetaminophen is that there is literally a ceiling on how effective it is as a medication. There's a ceiling on it where you take more, it's not going to work better. And at some point in time, uh, your internal organs hate you for it. So likewise with a lawn, you know, too many, things on it like more more gypsum more organic matter more this more that you get to the point where more of that doesn't help you and instead it's harming you right right <laughs> somebody mentioned true green in, in the chat i just i mean the thing is, I, I would like to do it myself and learn it and mm -hmm. know what's going on in my backyard. When they, I mean, it's it's all right. I mean, uh, my my wife is Syed, like... Syed, he, he is being 100% facetious. That guy, under no circumstances whatsoever, would Pat Kelly 
ever actually recommend hiring True Green. Okay. He's, he he's is, yanking yeah. your chain. 100% he, 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 yeah. yanking your chain. Yeah, Pat. Pat Kelly fact, is being hang on, Zion. Don't believe anything anyone says in the comments. Do not. You just don't read the comments. Don't pay attention because there's very rarely are you going to see anything like you can't handle the M. Uh, what? Uh, what? Uh, Jesse actually did have a good one here. Where he said the hardest lesson of all is to put into practice is doing less or nothing at all and simply being patient. Um, some people said it's the armpit of lawn care. Uh, uh, so it, <laughs> I'd like to put some light coats of it on my lawn. That's an inside baseball <laughs> thing. Poon juice, dirt yeah. booster. These are all way inside baseball things that come from the discord. So don't, don't take yeah. anything yeah. anyone yeah. says seriously. Because yeah, these, yeah. these guys are all just being total comedians you know at, at this point they're just being total comedians because most everyone in the chat they actually know the real story and they all know about less is more and they also don't believe all of the stuff that comes advertised or promoted or hawked as all of this fantastical, magical stuff in pretty bottles and pretty bags because let me tell you something about products. Yeah, I'm a sucker for a pretty bag. I like pretty bags. Okay. To me, for a, pretty bag. a good product is one that does not need to be promoted. And we're telling you a lot, for example, about 111 fertilizer, for example. And you know what's interesting about 111 fertilizer? All of these, or most of these people that have a product to sell, they don't like 111 at all. They say, oh no, you need this uh, other product in this shiny pretty bottle or shiny pretty bag you need this but the people for whom their business and their life livelihood is on the line all those guys actually know what 111 is and they use it okay they actually use it i mean because if i go talk to my friends in the golf industry and I tell them one one one, they say, Yup, we know what that is, and uh we used to use it until the uh salespeople came in with their uh products in the in the drums and the bags with the pretty labels. But you know, they know what's up. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. They know they actually know what's up. I mean, so Syed, you know, imagine that. <laughs> we are running out of time here. Do you have any final questions for us before we call this? I I think I I will rewatch this video a few times <laughs> and absorb uh everything. But no, definitely this is a great Starting point for me, and I really, really do appreciate 
your guys' help. I, I, I really needed help, and I really appreciate you helping me on this. So I think my journey starts here, and I would, I would really literally follow what you guys discussed there. And I think I'll be, I'll be by next year. I'll be, we'll be talking about real wars. I'm, I'm pretty sure. We look okay. forward to seeing the progress. Keep us posted in the Discord, of course, as, you know, any questions whatsoever, you know, don't hesitate to ask. Of course, everybody in there will be just as helpful as we would. And, uh, and you know, it's going to be fun to see. Don't get caught up not acting uh, because you're not sure about something. Ask, act, ask, act, ask, act. Don't go wait two months, three months before because you didn't know the answer to it, and then you, you opt and you don't do anything at all. So ask, act, ask, act. Just stay acting, and uh, and I'm telling you, this season's going to be over, and you're going to have a kick-ass lawn, and then you're going to be super stoked, and everybody's going to ask you what you did in your neighborhood, and then you can tell them. Uh, I don't know. You can tell them whatever you want. Tell them you learned at the barbecue stand <laughs> or something. I don't know. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say just just uh, subscribe to Grass and watch my videos. <laughs> don't let yes, the secret out. Good. We're hiding over here in the corner where we, no, we deserve. I think yeah. a lot of yeah. I mean, a lot of people need to watch the real science behind how things need to be done, and uh, mm. not too much into like okay, let's make your lawn into a golf course. I guess. Wait Thank a minute. You. Okay, you know, Uh-oh. Syed, that yeah. is a sore subject with me. That's a real sore <laughs> subject with me. And and do you know why that's a sore subject with me? I knew it was coming. Oh. It is because I'm familiar with the maintenance of actual golf turf. And there is no way that that much labor and materials is wasted on a golf course, Syed. (laughs) That is what pisses me off. Okay? That is what pisses me off. And I can talk because I have an experience maintaining golf-level turf. Uh, Ray, Ray, for the next hour, can uh, line up and doo doo on uh, just about everything he encounters in the world of online lawn care. And, uh, and so, anyway, Syed, thank you for coming on, sir. Please keep keep us posted, and and we'll we'll actually share it on air and and give everybody updates on this because I'm super excited for you, and uh, and I think you're going to be super pleased with the results you get. Uh, for everybody else at home, uh, DeMay is, of course, out. So we're going to have just a hyper short after show for the time being. And uh, we're just going to talk a little bit to recap some of the craziness that was going on during the show this time. And uh, I tried my best <laughs> to be really nice and not yell at anyone in the chat this time like I did Lawn Geek the other day. Uh, and so I think I did exceptionally well. And I'm going to commend myself for that. So we're headed out of here. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about us, check us out, patreon.com forward slash burn and return. Um, we do a show every Sunday that is more news uh, segmented where we talk about the things that are affecting the green industry from a news perspective. And, uh, and of course, you know, our Thursday, Thursday, where we interact with the community and then also provide time for you to be able to call in. Again, if you would like to support the show, uh, 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 patreon.com forward slash burn and return. We'll see y'all on the next one. 